All right, welcome to the latest installment of Behind the DM Screens for May of 2016. It's three DMs talking about their games and helping each other out. I've got 15 minutes on the clock for each of us to talk, and Sam, 15 minutes on the clock, go. You're a joker. (laughs) Well, so um, unfortunately, I have not gotten to run my microscope session uh, where I'm doing world building for my mm-hmm. Numenera slash Gamma World game. But I have played a game in between. Actually, three games in between. Wow. I played two sessions of Star Wars Edge of the Empire. I Well, I ran two sessions of Star Wars Edge of the Empire. And then last week, I ran a Mutant, Fu- Mutant Future one-shot. Mutant Future is, uh, is basically... Um, so there's this retro clone of basic D&D called Labyrinth Lord. And Labyrinth Lord is a really popular kind of update of of pe- people who love basic D and D love Labyrinth Lord basically. Okay. Uh, so when the OGL came out, they made Labyrinth Lord so that you could now produce things for basic D and D and you know not worry about copyright infringement and yada yada. So uh, and it's been a little bit updated and whatnot. It's easier to read. It's very nice. Um, and Mutant Future was produced as kind of a. Um, it's so it's it's based on Labyrinth Lord, so it's it's really based on basic D and D, but it's in the Gamma World universe, kind of. Although they can't say it's Gamma World because you know Licensing copyright game. infringement. Yeah. So um, basically, it's Gamma World. It's it's just like Gamma World First Edition, but it has all kinds of like modern new uh, updates and whatnot, and it's extremely fun. And so I played a game of that. I ran a game of that, and. The um, PCs, let me just tell you what the PCs were. The PCs were a, let me get to my page here, a, uh, a one-foot-tall blue spruce mutant plant <laughs> who could um, shoot rays of light out of three of his branches that did 4d6 damage, which is a huge amount of damage for first level. Um, Boris the boar, who was a five-foot-tall mutated boar, um, Mr. Bojangles, who was a, a felonoid, so he was a cougar who could leap short buildings in one single bound. I feel like he um, needed to be wearing a hat. Was he wearing a hat? He, he probably was wearing a hat, okay. yes. And it probably stayed just in place as yes. he jumped. Um, Drew was a 17-foot-tall basic android who ended up with a mutation, other than the, the enlarged mutation, he ended up with this mutation called Killing Sphere, which means that he emitted a pulse 20, in a 20-foot radius around himself. It did not injure him, but it injured every other thing in that radius. But it brought them down to one hit point, and if they failed their save, they would go unconscious as well. But the thing is that doing that made him basically unable to do anything else other than just sit down exhausted for several rounds. Mm. So uh, it was pretty interesting because it's amazing how many things actually made their saves. (laughs) Uh, And then Stank, who was a uh, sort of normal mutant human, except he ended up growing uh, full-size bat wings and found a revolver. So he used to fly around and, and shoot his revolver at rot dogs and spider goats. Uh, so that was a really fun adventure. But the reason I bring it up, I'm not going to tell you the whole adventure, but 
It's just this really kind of wacky, weird thing. But what happened was something that only happens in RPGs, and that is that I was I kind of um, I hacked this published scenario, and so I was running them through this very quick one shot uh, published scenario, and they get to this part where they enter this little town and they go into a bar to get some information and to get a drink. And I, I make a point of saying just I had just decided like off the cuff, oh, you know, this bar, it doesn't really have tables and chairs. It just kind of has these like boards up along the wall so that you can kind of stand there and you have something to put your drink on and maybe you can lean. But there's really no chairs. There's no bar stools and no chairs. And they kind of just were like, oh, OK, whatever. And, and they went around talking to people. Well, later on, you know, a couple hours later in the game, but but just a few minutes later in in the in in the real world, um, they end up going and searching these old abandoned containers just a you know few minutes up the road from the bar, and so they start looking. And so I pull out a random table, and my first roll on the random table is that they find uh, fifteen to twenty bar stools in a container. So basically, instead of deciding to finish the adventure. Which they ended up doing, but but there was about a half hour of debate at this point because now <laughs> they decide, well, look, we just found bar stools. You know how awesome our bar is going to be? It's going to completely do away with that. Nobody's going to go to that other bar that doesn't even have chairs. We're going to make a bar that's going to have chairs. People are going to be able to sit down. So they spent a half hour planning out their new future with. So with rather the, than be like, hey, we could totally stools. go. Rather than be like, hey, we could totally go to that bar and sell them these chairs. They're like, yeah. let's start a small business. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, you know, it's so it was such a like I didn't plan that at all. It was just completely random. I literally rolled the dice and that's the item that came up on the dice. So, you know, that kind of thing only happens in RPGs. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just completely, you know, off the wall. I think it. Not, I think there's another little thing in there, which it also often only happens if the GM is willing to. Uh, let the die let the dice roll on things like that and, yeah. and use the results where a lot of people might say no the plan tonight is x y and z and i don't care where the way the dice goes well right. and it's it's also a testament to the idea that as a dm when you're describing setting and you're feeling free to describe details those are potential seeds like i'm sure that that detail was not the only detail you mentioned that entire session oh yeah no but but no, because you mentioned that detail and and 500 others you know one of them statistically there's a there's a chance something was going else was going to happen in the night that played into that you know so right yeah and the group latched onto it it was just mm-hmm. a lot of fun it, and and that's sort of it's one of the reasons that basic D&D is is my favorite edition just in terms of off the cuff playing like it's so, it's so easy you can just do whatever and it's mm. you're not going to break the system uh and it's it's also a testament to the power of a one shot you know in a one shot i'm not you know, there. You know, usually if I'm running a campaign, I kind of walk into it and I say, okay, well, the optimum case is that the party will resolve this particular event or this particular conflict or they'll find this particular bit of information or something, right? I normally have a, a pretty good idea of what needs to happen during that session, and it's usually only one or two things. So there's plenty of time for, the, for a lot of other stuff to happen, but those two things are, mm-hmm. are kind of – you know, this has to occur for the game to keep moving forward. But in a one shot, you know, and so that that sort of, you know, sometimes it sort of forces your hand in certain situations. But in a one shot, you know, you you could just go with whatever because it doesn't mm. really matter. 
And it didn't matter if they ended up, you know, and as I said, they eventually did decide to go finish kind of the mission that they were given. But even if they hadn't, we would have had a heck of a game, you know, otherwise. Right. I mean, it was just a lot of fun. So uh, the, 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 there's sort of this thing about one shots. I, I didn't used to run a lot of one shots and I still do prefer campaign play, but mm. You know, throwing in a one-shot or a two-shot every once in a while is really good. And that's actually what I did with Edge of the Empire. I, I, ran, the, um, I ran the beginner box scenario for this group because they'd never played any kind of game like that. And I have a bunch of extra dice because, you know, Edge of the Empire uses special dice and all that. Mm-hmm. So I just brought this big bowl of dice and I was like, okay, here's what these dice mean. Let's just go with it. And I just handed out, you know, pre-gens. And I said, okay, here's the situation. Here, Boom, let's just go. And, and we'll talk through it as we go. And it was a lot of fun. And it was so fun. They didn't want to just end with one session. They wanted a whole extra session. So we played another session a couple weeks later. So it was a lot of fun. Yeah, talk about Edge of the Empire. I, I've, I've, I mean, I know of the game. And I remember when it launched at Gen Con. And it was the big big deal of that, yeah. of that, um, that con or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I've never heard anything about the actual like system and how it works and or any of that. So here's how the system works. Um, uh, basically, you ha- you have a race and you have a specialty, which is really like your class. And that whatever your specialty is uh, it, it, or whatever your career is actually opens up different um, pathways for you, different talent trees. So you can learn different skills based on what your career is and based on what your specialty is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when – so what happens is you have dice that um, they have different symbols on them. So one of the symbols is, an, is called an advantage symbol. And one is a, a success symbol, and one's a threat symbol, and one's a triumph symbol. There's like all these symbols, right? Mm-hmm. And basically the key is based on how how many ranks you have in a particular skill, you get a certain number of dice. And the, the dice, there's D8s, there's 8-sided dice, and there's 12-sided dice. And of course they have different numbers of the symbols on them. So it's better to have a higher die right Mm. so it's better to roll a d12 than a d8 because the d12 has more opportunities for successes on there plus it has triumphs on it Mm -hmm. and so basically how it works is this you roll a a set number of dice and you also add in some difficulty dice in there which kind of have more threats and and problem there's more problem symbols on those dice you roll the dice and your goal is to get at least one success so let's say you're rolling seven dice on those seven dice, you want it so threat threat symbols cancel out success symbols, right? So if you if you roll one threat and one success, your roll is even. You don't actually succeed, right? So if you roll like three threats but four successes, it doesn't matter how many threats you rolled because three of your successes canceled them out, and you still have one success left over, so you succeed. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you might have the case where you've got a disadvantage or an advantage. So if you succeed with advantage, you succeed at the task and then also maybe you learn something extra or maybe you impress somebody or maybe you get more than what you were trying to get. So if you were trying to negotiate with somebody and you succeed with advantage, you might actually learn more information than you had initially thought you were going to or something like that. Or if it's during a combat, if you succeed and you have advantage with that, you might actually do a critical hit instead of just a regular hit or something like that, right? That's kind of how it Remove works. Remove someone's hand with your lightsaber. 
Right, exactly. Yeah. Or the opposite could also happen, though. You might fail, but you might fail with advantage. So you might not succeed at that particular task, but maybe you learn something that will help you next time. Or mm. you might actually succeed, but with, with disadvantage, basically. Uh, it's not really called advantage and disadvantage. I'm just using those terms because they're easy to understand. So uh, if, you, if, you su- if you fail or if you succeed, but you have disadvantage, that means you did succeed at the task, but something happened. Uh, and so, you know, maybe you actually had to put someone else in danger. You put yourself in more danger next time or, you know, there, there's, it's very narrative because of that, because there's lots of different outcomes. You could just flat succeed and you can just flat fail, but you can also succeed with an, with a better, you know, with an advantage or you can fail with an advantage or you can succeed with a threat or you can fail with a threat so there's you know it's kind of this more granular item but the thing is that the the effects of advantage and 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 the threats and all that it's not prescribed so you have to narrate what's happening okay you know so you, you know and so it it sort of brings in and, and of course the idea is you get the players involved what do you think should happen you you succeeded and you got these you know two uh, you know two advantages or whatever what do you think should happen mm-hmm. that makes sense within the context of the scene that's happening so it adds a little bit of story game element to your your typical right. sort of combat simulation exactly. game yeah and, it, and it's very fluid once you kind of, and I kind of worried about you know all these dice are kind of complicated and or you know and you could you know I'm not using the right names for a lot of the symbols and stuff because it doesn't even matter you you learn what the symbol means and you can quickly calculate okay there's none of those successes left over crap I failed do I right. have any you know do I have a boon or a bane with my failure mm-hmm. kind of thing so uh, and you know, once once the players did it a couple times, it's like, oh yeah, I, t- I got this. Don't worry. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's not too bad. But it's really fun because of that because you you know, and as a GM, you have to kind of say, okay, well, what do you think should happen? You succeeded, but you also got two advantages. How are you going to spin those advantages, right? Because there's also a damage track, there's a strain track, so you can actually just use advantage for something simple like healing up some strain. You know, so you you know you basically putting yourself in a better mental and physical position. You know, things like so there are some mechanical things to do there. It's not all completely narrative, but there is a lot of narrative openness there. Can I can I switch gears and talk about uh, Labyrinthord a little bit? Sure. Um, so you mentioned that kind of the classic D and D was sort of, you know had that sort of open ability to sort of let the story evolve. Yeah. Um, do, do you think Fifth Edition does not have that? No, I think fifth edition does, um, but fifth edition has a lot more rules because the characters are a lot more complicated mechanically. Right. Right. So in basic basic D and D, there's no skills whatsoever. Yeah. So every yeah. everything is an attribute check, and um, yeah, I've often it, it, right. it's kind of yeah, well, it's kind of funny. I've, I've often like because I I think in during the playtest during the D and D next uh, era, you know, skills were sort of an optional thing that you could add mm-hmm. on. And I, and I think they made that more part of the core. But it seems like because skills basically just add a proficiency bonus to whatever you want to do, you could do a very – it would be very easy to do like a 13th age style, you know, if it, if it fits your background, you're proficient in it. You yeah. Know, do, do your attribute, and if it, if it fits your background, you're proficient in it. Yeah. Uh, and and there's – of skills completely. But I don't think anybody yeah. does that. And I don't know that players would want to. There's – I mean there's some other differences too. Uh, saving throws are very different. Yeah, um, yeah I saw and um, and uh, feats, of course. There's no feats in basic D and D. Also, yeah, feats is actually considered an optional rule. Right, right, right. So, 
But you're I mean, you have to agree to that, right? Who the, the hell thing is that? that, yeah, I mean, in 5th edition, there's a lot more optional stuff that's kind of got 30 years of of we know some people like this and some don't kind of behind it. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, but, you know, basic D&D also has, you know, descending armor class. So the lower your armor class, the yeah, better. Yeah, yeah, and it, yeah. Yeah, those all seem kind of like throwbacks yeah. rather than a, right. it, it a uses true design a hit, difference. Yeah, it uses a hit matrix, you know, instead of like you don't have a target number. So, yeah, it's it, there's a lot of differences there. Do I, I mean, so 5th edition can play... There's also healing differences. Healing is a lot easier in 5th edition than it is in basic. Um, and Labyrinth Lord, for that matter. Um, I mean, not it's, near, Not you know, nearly as easy as it was in 4th. That's correct. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. No no argument from me there. Um, I think the feel is different because I think in 5th in edition, even though 1st and 2nd levels are very squishy, by 3rd and 4th level, you feel very heroic because you can do some really cool stuff. Mm-hmm. And the progression is uh, is a lot flatter. And so you feel – by the time you feel like you can do stuff, you keep that feeling for a long time. In basic D&D, it's, it still has the, oh, my goodness, you're struggling until you right. hit fifth level. And fifth level is, you know, 50,000 experience or 80,000 experience. It's not, <laughs> you know, 7,000 experience. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's a, it's a very different game in that respect. But – Fifth edition can play very much like an old school game, very right. very much so. It depends on how many options you want to throw in there right. and how many how many how many character things that you want. I mean, the thing is, like, you can roll up a basic D and D character in literally four minutes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. You cannot yeah. roll up a fifth edition character in literally four minutes. Yeah, you can get close though. Yeah, I mean, you could. Yeah, I think with a with a you, couple but, of minor tweaks, I think you, you could. You can get close if you know the system and you have an idea of what you want to do. Yeah, and you put enough limitations D&D, on it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. If, you, if in basic D&D you don't have to know anything, somebody right. tells you, roll 3D6, there you go. Yeah, I think you could yeah. do an old school version of fifth, but it's certainly not designed that way. Yeah, I, I, would, I would actually, I would really like to see somebody uh, who isn't me come up with a <laughs> uh, sort of a, a basic D&D. And I think some people have tried, right? I, th- I thought I heard there was going to be like a new, you know, whatever it is, new white box without the box mm-hmm. where they were going to take the 5th edition uh, SRD and, and kind of take it back to basic D&D. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a real, I think there's something pretty cool there. You know, I think... But, yeah, I, but again, I, like, I think I like that idea a lot and I don't know that much, I don't know that any players that would. But you know, here's my, here's my <laughs> problem. I mean, I, I think people who... Are playing fifth ed- I, I think modern players who want to play fifth edition, they like the character options. They want the new backgrounds and they want the skills and they want the ability maybe to do feats depending on the game. And, you know, they want all of that stuff. In basic D&D, it's just not – I mean, it's just not there in canonical basic D- It's just – it's not there. Mm-hmm. You're not going to have it. It's not even an option. If it's an option, it's because the, you know, the GM or the DM kludged something on to that, you know, whatever their system is. Or if they're using Rules Cyclopedia. Now, Rules Cyclopedia incorporated all of the skills mm-hmm. from the different gazetteers, which, right. which included different things going on. And so you can run that way and it's got skills. But the skills are very different. They're not like modern skills. It's not a modern skill system right. at all. Yeah. And I think – I guess for me, the thing is if I'm going to play 5th edition, I'm just going to play 5th edition. Because mm-hmm. if I'm going to play basic, I'm not going to play 5th edition right. 
kind of like basic. I'm just going to freaking play basic. You know what I mean? Because you have that option. You have that those those rules available to you and what have you. Yeah, but Rule Cyclopedia is on uh, DMD Classics or GM Guild now yep. uh, for nine ninety nine. Yep. Mm-hmm. So anybody and and the actually the red box the nineteen the Mensa red box nineteen eighty three Mensa red box is also there I think for. Nine ninety nine or fourteen ninety nine or four ninety nine or whatever it is on sale at the and point. And if you want to buy it, go through the banner on the TomeShow dot com. That's and we can right. Get <laughs> it, I, I highly recommend that investment. It is a great product, if nothing else, to give you an idea of the start of basic D anD D. But anyway, awesome. And your time is long over, so uh, we could. I can't help it. Mike asked me a question. Mike asked questions, me. and I did not say a word. I just let it go. <laughs> yep. Yeah, no, I was. I was interested. Cool. No, no, that's cool. All right, so I am next, um, and I'm trying to remember where I left off last time. I think uh, they had left the my Disarin Valley uh, analog with the the island of Disarin um, in our uh, post-apocalyptic fantasy Earth setting thing that I'm mm-hmm. mashing up all the adventures to to clue people in. It's got the uh, Princess of the Apocalypse, uh, Out of the Abyss, The Rod of Seven Parts, and the original Freeport trilogy all sort of happening simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I talked about how I've now split off the Freeport bit to be sort of a side campaign when we're short on players. Uh, and that's working really well since they never quite got there and it was too far away and that's fine. Uh, they were headed up north. Uh, having left Red Larch, they found out that um, Eldath, who was who I made part of the Dwarven delegation in the out of the, you know, out in the um, Prince of the Apocalypse story. Mm-hmm. But is one of the prisoners in the Out of the Abyss story. So that was, you know, she was the connection between the two there. Uh, they found out that she um, was on her way trying to get out of the Underdark. Um, she knew of trade routes between um, uh, one of the c- cities that they created in the world. And uh, I can't remember if it was Gracklestug or Blingdenstone, but one of those two. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... They're like, okay, well, we'll go to that city and work our way down to the Underdark and see if we can, you know, meet her halfway down and get that person out and whatever. And as they got there, um, the person with the first piece of the Rod of Seven Parts started to feel the tug towards the second piece because it, it's near that place. The As the adventure of the, for the Rod of Seven Parts states, there is a um, – it's it sort of – once you have them, they pull you to the next one in order. Um and they were the kind of the right level at that point, so I'm said, and it's un, it's an underdark sort of dungeon crawl into this Abeleth layer, and I'm like, great, it's over here, right next to that city. It's in these old uh, goblin ruins, and and you got to sort through that and, and dig around and whatever. Hmm. Um, so that happened. I'm also trying to continue layering in this sort of post-apocalyptic thing because I I have a tendency to in those details that we talked about with Sam, right? I have this tendency to. Um, to default to, to standard boring fantasy and leave mm-hmm. out and leave out interesting details. And every now and then I'll, I'll throw something in like the one guy who figured out how to melt down old plastic things and mold it into new plastic things. Right. And he makes wagons, which worked out really well because they have glob with them and they didn't want him to eat through the hull of the ship. So they made him <laughs> like a big sled, um, which is great. Um, so anyway, yeah, so so one of my thoughts was as they were on the ship sailing north to this other town to get into the Underdark, they, I'm like, oh, well, this ship isn't going all the way. You have to stop in this other port town and then you get a little ex- exposure to another, another part of the, the world, right? Uh, and the idea was this port town um, was built inside of an old aircraft carrier. So this aircraft carrier had sort of 
run aground on this island, and they just sort of hollowed it out and, and you know, bored holes through the side of it, and that's where ships dock. It's hmm. on the side of this aircraft carrier. And so, in, but I don't say you go up to an aircraft carrier. Of course, I described it. You approach the port town, and there is just this giant wall of metal that goes super high and, you know, whatever. Uh, and it's got, oh, can I, can I interrupt you for a second? Yes. That is the best thing about post-apocalyptic games. Yeah. Is that you get to describe stuff that you could just say, oh, yeah, it's a car. But you have to, like... Have fun with the description. Try, and try to make it alien, right? Yeah, see if, if the characters can figure it out, you know. Yeah, that's fun. So I'm trying to do more of that, and I'm, I don't – like, I'm doing well on, on, like, these certain notes, but I'm not getting, like, the small details that I kind of want to get in there. But it's hard to think, like, this is theoretically, like, thousands of years into the future. What, what actually has survived, right? I don't know. So sometimes it's hard for me to make that call, and I just default to boring fantasy. Um, so they went through there, um, they, they sort of, they were promoted, their, their, their role is that they are the sort of semi-autonomous military um, unit that basically does troubleshooting and adventuring and whatever for the military. Um, so they, they met their sort of superior officer and got promoted and, you know, dropped off some prisoners and what have you that they picked up along the way. They ran into... Um, there's this other threat in the world that they'd created when we did the setting creation, which is um, called the Hive. And so there's these, uh, they're a, an insect, insectoid um, race that has sort of infested South America. Uh, and they keep sending their sort of giant swimming bug, like living bug like ships full of their people up into the, the player's home territory, which is called the Free Realms. Uh, and they can't figure out why, but they keep coming in and raiding and stealing things and whatever, and the party keeps running into them, and they foiled a plot, and they took one of them prisoner and said, hey, this might be useful to you. You know, turn this over to the military. Maybe you can actually learn something about these people. What they don't know is that um, the bug creatures are actually a lawful neutral hive mind mm. that are not antagonistic towards the, the free realms and, and humanity at all. They couldn't care less, but they have no means of communication because they all communicate via this high mind. They don't have a communica- an audible communication system, and their minds are too alien for, for telepathic sort of communication or whatever. So it's mostly a big misunderstanding, but they know that there is a source of, of extreme chaos in the center of the free realms, and they keep trying to go and investigate it because they're super lawful creatures, right? Hmm. So I'm looking forward to seeing how that plays out. Um, and then and then they made it all the way to the north. They found out about the, the pull to the next part of the, the uh, Rod of Seven Parts. They decided, hey, while we're here, before we go get lost in the Underdark, this thing is nearby. Let's go check it out. Uh, and, and it's a – the adventure is odd, and maybe it's an old-school thing. Maybe Sam can fill us in because he's our old-school expert. But – because it, it was an, you know, an older sort of classic adventure – um, but it has this, like, you go into this, this cave complex, and it's really low-level creatures. It's like, you know, scum, right? Which are the, the slaves of Aboleths, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, you work your way down, and it's relatively easy. It's relative, I mean, there's a few hard encounters here and there, but it's relatively easy through multiple levels. And then you get to the bottom, and it's a flooded cavern that... You know, they can't breathe in because it's all, all underwater. And there's an Aboleth in there, which is way more powerful than everything else, right? Um, right. But so 
that, that how many level how many levels did they go through to get to that like 16 5 6 something it's it's like six layers but they're really yeah. short they're, like each layer is like five right, or six but, rooms so if you go into a room with a bunch of spider webs what do you expect to find spiders right so if you go into an area and everywhere you go there's all of these sort of aboleths thralls mm-hmm. what do you expect to find at the bottom of the yeah Sure, but you know on a, I mean? but but that's that's on a meta level. Like, how many people just how many people in the world would just innately know that scum are associated with that? Well, no, no. <laughs> well, I, that's the thing. Like, so I guess my what I'm pointing out to you though is that's a very old school thing. Like, right. That's you know it, part of this part of the thing with old school play is the skill of the players has to be you know the reason you start out so weak is that you have to learn through experience, you know. As I said, okay, you walk into a room. If the if the DM is describing cobwebs to you, you immediately look up and look to see if there's a spider up there. Sure. Because you don't want to get jumped on. And you check for traps at every door. And you, you know, you make sure that if a, if a hallway looks really clean, you know there's a there's a gelatinous cube around. Right. You know, you and so you you learn those things through play. And so it was incumbent on the DM, which is a good thing and a bad thing in mm-hmm. terms of old school play. It was incumbent on the DM to give enough clues that the players would figure out, oh, oh, wait a minute. You know, there's well, these it, thralls here. That it, that must be – there's going to be a big bad thing that's dominating right. them down at the bottom. And it also sort of makes part of the metagame part of the game. Right? right, you're not supposed to make yeah. decisions based on what your character understands or knows. You're supposed yeah, to make it's, it's, you're, yeah, you're supposed to memorize to the monster manual. <laughs> that's right. Well, well, that's the problem is that you're not actually supposed to memorize the monster manual. You're supposed to learn through careful play, uh-huh. and that that's part of the you know. I mean, I mean, I'm not I'm not saying it's the best thing ever. I'm saying sure. it has its challenges, method. and that's mm-hmm. one of them. Is that if you're you know, it relies a lot on the DM giving the clues in a way that the players understand Mm -hmm. you know the thing about you know everybody knows now that a troll has to be hit with some fire or else it'll keep regenerating but how did you find that out the very first time Mm -hmm. well for modern players they found out because they read the monster manual right but for old school players you didn't necessarily you know a troll was new you didn't know what was happening so you had to learn through play Mm -hmm. or the dm had to describe for you some hint that would make you try something new that would then do the trick and then you'd learn and you'd write down, okay, well, we know that when we fight gnolls, they don't like fire, so we can't, you know, things like that. Right. So it is very much a metagame, yeah. yeah. It's a play, player and character skill are important. Sure, absolutely. So, yeah, there's, 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 there's a couple of interesting ways that I've, that I've handled stuff like that. One is that I, I, don't, I don't really like to sort of fight against the metagaming so, you know, a good solid history, and, and luckily I've got players that are willing to not work with the metagame, so they know deep down, but they make sure their characters act like they don't. Uh, but I'll give them some good chances for religion checks or arcana yeah, yeah. checks or history checks to learn basically what they already know, um, and that kind of sinks everything. And the other one is then you change the monsters up so that, you know, turns out the troll and fire are not the issue. Right, well, right, and yeah. I and, I, and I've already done a little bit of that because there is yeah. no fifth edition version of the scum, so there I just made them Quotoa. So yeah, right, right, yeah, reskinning works real well. Yeah. I don't know what the hell they're actually facing? They're just Quotoa that back down against a fight really easily, you know. Right, right. So, so yeah, so I, I like part of me looks at the situation and says, well, there's there's no way as it stands unless I throw them some Deus Ex Machina. Um, there's no way for them to proceed to the end of this little dungeon crawl without going back to the city 
and and resupplying because they have no means of breathing underwater and the the last level is entirely underwater um which you know resupply maybe up a level and maybe the abolith would be okay my concern is that they're not gonna go back because they'll be like oh i guess we we're not ready for this yet we'll just go on to the underdark thing and come back later and knowing my players regardless of the the characters <laughs> the players just will never go back yeah uh now i do have a a bit of a deus ex machina character associated with that storyline there in the adventure although you have to find it in the side quest section and they don't make it easy to to get to um there is a character called uh Ar- Ar- Arquestin, I guess, is how I'm going to pronounce it. Um, and Arquestin is one of the Wind Dukes, throwing back to your old school um, Greyhawk, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, who is originally responsible, you know, the people who are originally responsible for uh, capturing and chaining up uh, Mishka the Wolf Spider, who is the big bad of that storyline. Um, and so he's been sort of watching them. And they've actually kind of found him out because there's this same person with trained white mice, you know, p- performing for money and giving the money away to, to little kids in every town they go to. And it's the exact same person. And he's always there and he always beat them there. And eventually they're like, wait a minute. When they get to the, the aircraft carrier city, they're like, wait a minute. Who the heck is this guy? <laughs> so, so they finally like confronted him. And and, and actually he's in the guise of a, of a woman, Arquija or whatever, uh, female version of her name. Uh, is in there uh and so uh they they finally confront her and and um she's completely honest you know when she when they they ask she's not she's cryptic she's not you know volunteering information uh but she's completely honest with them and so they get an idea oh well there's something special going on this person is keeping an eye on us and is apparently um without us knowing it already headed off you know multiple attacks and things that were coming at us from the what the queen of chaos and which is mishka miska's uh what lieutenant or whatever that's trying to free free mishka the wolf spider from his prison um so i could always have arkistan uh just sort of show up when they're about to turn around and say here here's some potions of water breathing go forth you know um and and then so for that, the question yeah. is, how cheesy will your players find that? Yeah, and I don't know if they would find it cheesy. Um, and and the, I think the bigger question is, am I willing to swallow a little bit of cheese if it means they actually complete that storyline? <laughs> right. Because ultimately, the Rod of Seven Parts storyline is like the last five levels of the campaign. That's the That's the end game. If they don't do part two, then that becomes problematic. Right. I mean, I can always find other ways, you know, of doing it. I, you know, somebody else manages to get part two, and then they bump into him later or whatever. But and and if they so do, they, and if they do leave and come back, I'm, there's rule, there's instructions in there about how to sort of repopulate the dungeon that they've already cleared out. And I kind of don't want to go through the dungeon again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that you hand wave. You say, okay, well, you having been through here before, you see that there are other creatures coming mm-hmm. back in, but you know the way around, so you can... You can avoid you know. them or whatever. Yeah. I mean, if it's necessary for them to get the second piece, I mean, you're not... Your hands are kind of tied, if that's... if that's the... Well, it's necessary that they get all the pieces. Um, it is specifically detailed, like, if they miss one, that's cool. Here are some other alternatives. So they could... Right. And, they, and, and they But it does become a bit of even cheesier of, well, this other person got it for you, you know, or this other person get it and just happened to run into you or whatever, you know? Right. So, the, so then how is it more cheesy to have 
orchestral do the uh the the here's your water breathing potion mm. or is it more cheesy for him to show up later and say hey here's the second half you'll need this for later right that's you know sort of which day <laughs> sucks market is the least cheesy yeah yeah <laughs> and and it um, could be that they'll go back to town because they have because they're part of the military they have a base of operations back in the town they could literally just go back to the town and, and say we want to requisition some water breathing potions and get them like they could do that uh, and if I feel like at at the table, because we played this Saturday, I feel like at the table, if I get the impression that they would do that and then actually come back, I might just do that. If it feels like they don't, then maybe our Creston j- just sort of shows up at that point, you know. I hear you're heading back to the Underdark. Well, before you do, here, have this, you know, sort of thing. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. That's the kind of thing where I would, at the table, honestly, I'd just go with the flow. Like, if they end up not going back, okay, fine. Um, and then later on, it has to make their life complicated that they didn't, right. you know, get the second piece. But that's, you know, maybe honestly, maybe, in a long, longer campaign, I would just put that off got, and not time. think about it. Yeah, I would true. let them resolve it themselves. They'll come up with something awesome. Well, and I could... Actually, because if they do bypass it, if they do not go back, then they're going to be going into the Underdark, into the Out of the Abyss storyline, which includes the demons and the madness stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the player who's missing that second piece, uh, maybe I have that start affecting his mind, and he has disadvantage on those saves against madness. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So a little something to say, well, you know, you done messed up, and now you're going to pay the price. <laughs> yeah. But then, you know, be careful, you, you know, make sure that they understand why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I, I th- and I think I could, you know, there's just this constant nagging, this constant pull that, of, to that thing that you yeah. never got, and uh, and it wears away at you, and it makes you more susceptible. Right. And yeah, as long as I describe it like that, I think, yeah, you're right. Then then they know yeah. why. Because you don't want it to seem like a punishment. Arbitrary punishment, yeah. Yeah. Oh, you didn't, you didn't do it the way I wanted you to do it, so I'm going to, yeah. you know, you're going crazy now. Yep. Hit you, know, you with a hammer. Which is what, you know, that's hearkening back to what I said earlier. That's kind of one of the issues with the sort of older school games. They rely so much on the DM. Well, if your DM is a punishing DM, mm-hmm. uh, that's not always fun. Right. Yeah. In fact, it's rarely fun. <laughs> yeah, that adversarial DM style. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's, it's really weird when I when I survey or, or whatever with my players. I get the impression that they feel like I'm more way more adversarial than I think I am. So I try to back off on it in the last year or two. That's <laughs> so funny. My players say the same thing. And, mm-hmm. I, and I sat them down at the end of the last campaign and I said, you know, I'm on your side. Like I, I root for you guys. But if I didn't throw really tough challenges at you, you'd walk all over me and it wouldn't be any fun anymore. Like, you know. So I think they kind of relaxed a little bit, and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, you're, I guess you're right. Looking at the history, you really aren't, you know, you don't just kill us off to kill us off, mm-hmm. you know. Okay. Well, I'm also over my time, which is fine. <laughs> we have plenty of it, but uh, <laughs> we will give Mike his due. We ha- He has 15 minutes on the clock, and we've got 20 minutes before we hit an hour on the recording. So, Mike. Hello. You're up. Uh, so I have been running Curse of Strahd, and I've been running for two different groups. Um, I have a Wednesday game and a Sunday game. Both are, um, like, one's a two-and-a-half-hour, three-hour game. The other one is a two-hour game. So I run uh, a lot of shorter sessions. Um, one group has finished uh, Death House and is in, just about to leave. They've done a bunch of stuff in Barovia. The other one is in the middle of Death House. 
Um, I really like Death House. I, th- I thought it was a fantastic little mini adventure. Um, I like that they gave it away for free. I think it's a fun, you know, I think probably requires a little bit more of an experienced hand to, mm-hmm. to, to run it and make it fun, but it's nice that it's available. It's not, yeah, it it's feels, not, it feels it's really tough. Vendor-like. It feels really tough without any chance to like rest in the middle of that thing. Uh, well, so, you know, a good DM knows how to handle that, I think. And <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> one, way to, one way to handle it is they start at level two or they are level yeah. <laughs> two when they get there and they become level three when they talk to the kids and that way they're level three when they go down to the basement and then mm-hmm. things go a lot smoother. Yeah, sure. Um, the other one is like if they negotiate successfully with the kids, they can uh, rest in the, the kids' area oh, yeah. before they go all the way downstairs. Uh, I think one group didn't. I think one group, they went all the way through without any rests, but they were heavy melee types and didn't have too much trouble. Um, yeah, but it's just a fun, I, you know, I found, I found running it, uh, you know, twice. Like, so you, you would think that running, like, the same thing for two groups would get kind of boring. Um, and shockingly, for me, it doesn't. For me, I, I feel like I get to refine it, and, and, you know, I really get to play off of what the group does, uh, which, you know, even early on in, a, in an adventure like this... Um, you know, separates things and excite, you know, give, gives me some kind of interesting things to work mm-hmm. through. Especially as you get into the actual Curse of Strahd and out yeah, of so once it's right? Rid, it's because it's so big open. Yeah, that's definitely going to uh, widen out, especially mm-hmm. it's just by the Madame Eva fortune telling and stuff like that. Yeah, they, they'll go in all kinds of different directions. Yeah. yeah. It'll be like two different games, totally. Yeah. Uh, so some definitely some fun stuff in the town of Barovia itself. Uh, I put a little mini dungeon beneath the cathedral, and one of my favorite little little tropes is always the uh, ancient idol that's been buried under the earth for a thousand years that's filled with the terrible evil, you know. And uh, as you do, yeah. what's that? As you do, <laughs> as you do, right? And and they exposed it, and the you know last night the group was like, oh, I don't know, should we screw with this thing? Should we try to break it up? I'm like, well, you could try to break it up, but it's going to be hard and and filled with peril. And they're like, I guess we'll just leave it to the priest. <laughs> hey, you got something evil in the basement? You know, don't uh, don't go down there. Yeah, you could do something about it. You could do something about it, but or you're... you know, you could do the easy thing and just ignore it. That leaves, <laughs> that leaves like a nice red. Stuff your fingers in yours and go la la la. No evil thing here. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's it's kind of a nice open thread. Uh, the other interesting encounter, and it's it's a little surprising that the, the way it's handled in the adventure itself, because how it actually is going to be played out at the table, I think is going to be very different. Is running into the 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 uh, hag that sells uh, dream pastries. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I thought that was really fun, and it's a nice. One of the things um, that the adventure, I think, needs, and, and you know, well, I think there's already been a couple articles about it, and I probably will pile on and write an article about it, too. Uh, what are the hooks that connect the different locations in the adventure to one another? Mm. Uh, obviously, the, um, the fortune-telling from Madame Eva does it somewhat, but uh, if you really want to, you know, I'd like to at least have the threads out there so that uh, the players are interested in going to all of the places, even if they don't go to all of them. Um, so, you know, what connects things? Well, she's a big connector to one of the other locations. I can't say which one because mm-hmm. my wife is sitting right here uh, <laughs> and, and it's filled with spoilers. But uh, uh, I'll give you a slight hint about what it is. It's a windmill. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's, a, you know, and they already got a big clue that it was windmill. Um, but the funny thing is, so here's this, that she's selling dream pastries. Two of the players who did a fantastic job of immediately eating the dream pastries um, you know, and I forgot to award them inspiration and plan to do so at the beginning of next week. They ate the dream pastries. And then so one of them heard a perception check that something was moving inside the cart. So 
one of the characters who's a bit more righteous than the others flips the card over and 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 a bag tumbles out with a small boy inside and mm. and immediately the guy hits her in the face with a with a magically with a shillelagh right like his his <laughs> magical shillelagh that he had or he hits her in the face and she's like ah and then the paladin's like oh my word my poor old lady and heals her immediately <laughs> and so they get in this really interesting debate about like you know and she's like, well, I didn't kidnap the kid. I was given the kid, right? Like, the parents gave him to me. It's like, you still had him in a bag in your cart. And now those now those dream pastries are really suspicious. And um, so there's this whole kind of deal. And basically, like, you know, at least one of the players is like, I want to, you know, she needs to be executed. She needs to at least be tried and, you know. But, you know, we, we already have a lot of bad evidence to this. And, you know, so there's a bit of an investigation. Go and find the mother of the child. And the mother's totally cracked out on dream pastries and doesn't even recognize the child. <laughs> and, you know, all kinds of other stuff. And eventually, oh, and then the guy who hit her in the face kept saying, like, I hit her in the face with a shillelagh and she barely even moved. Right? Like, she's obviously <laughs> woman. So, you know, and, and again, a little metagaming, but not really. Right? Like, he did hit her in the face yeah, with a shillelagh. And she barely and moved. What a crumpled like an old sack. And she's like, hey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know so they eventually i think oh she slept one of them right somebody there were two people that were kind of guarding her and she dropped sleep on one of them because sleep is awesome and overpowered and um he dropped and then the other one attacked her and they they all just started missing her not because of any you know just bad dice rolls but it worked really well into the story yeah and, they're, they're, this group is going to be in, in an interesting conundrum because they're in a horror movie and they want to slow down and do things by the by the book and follow the law, right? <laughs> yeah, put, it's good. Well, they, they, so put actually, the bad guys on trial. Like always goes well in a horror movie. Yeah. Well, so so one thing that I've been very happy with with both groups is they they've hung on to the idea that it's a horror movie and they do horror movie stuff. Mm. So like what you know, I I don't know if I mentioned this last time or not, but one of my favorite scenes was you know they're inside the death house and they're all kind of doing their stuff up. The, you know, I think they're on the third floor or something like that, and they hear the chimes of little bells down below and they're like holy cow what's that and they look over and it was the barbarian of the character who's tugging on the string that's making the bells <laughs> ring in the dumbwaiter and he's like looking at them and they're looking at him and like why are you ringing the bells you know because you know so they've, they've kind of <laughs> jumped you know and they're like i look under the bed you know <laughs> so so they're, they're purposely doing all the horror movie stuff but i think somebody said it is like it's a horror movie but we're dressed in armor we have swords and spells <laughs> like we're well prepared for the crap that comes out at us um, but they've they've not you know they've they've gone with the obvious tropey sort of choices. I mean, going you know going into Barovia in the first place is obviously an idiot's choice, right? And and yet they they all did it right because they know that's where things are going. I think I talked about that right. They were going to get kidnapped by Drow otherwise. Uh, yeah, I think you did. Yeah. So Sam um, missed that, but yeah, we, the, our listeners have heard. Yeah, right. Like the same group that was going to do Curse of Strahd was trying to decide whether they would do Out of the Abyss, and I said if you don't go into Strahd's domain, you're going to get kidnapped by Drow. And, and thus begin out of the abyss. All right. Um, so, uh, yeah, so they, they, they punch her in the face. She slept one of them. Then she eventually, they, they got the clue. Oh, she did a uh, Vistani curse on someone else and took away his uh, necrotic. He, had, he was an Asimar, and he just lost his necrotic resistance uh, due to the curse. And now his, the, to break the curse, he's got to kill her. He's got to find her and kill her. And uh, she then plane walked into hell. And they're like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, <laughs> opens up in the middle of Barovia, right? And she just steps through, and the portal slams shut. And they're like, was that hell? Did we just see hell? Also, is, also, I don't think that's supposed to be possible in Barovia. <laughs> oh, she, yeah, yeah, good point. You yeah. Know, but 
There she is. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, it, it, you know, Night Hag, she has Plane Shift. Um, that's a good point, I think. Yeah, I think there's but rules in the mist section about what happens when you cast spells like that in, inside the mist. Yeah, but she's been living there a long time. And she's just <laughs> went to another part of Barovia, so it doesn't matter. Right. And besides, um, the players don't know that. No, well, I mean, the, but the that would have been, been, been an opportunity for them to see what happens. Yeah, maybe if they eat a few more children, they'll uh, be able to teleport. So, um... <laughs> uh... So what else? Oh, so another interesting th- sort of that, like the the what is it called? The 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 sort of conflict between DMs and players. Um, you know, last night they had like a good solid plan. They were going down to the basement of the church, and rather than just have uh, Doru, who's the vampire spawn down there, um, I I had this like cavern complex that had broken through the walls of the basement, and that's where that ancient idol was. And there were ghouls down there too. So instead of seeing Doru first thing, they saw a big pack of ghouls. It was like four ghouls and Doru. So it was a pretty tough fight for level mm-hmm. threes. And um, but they were really good. And so the if, you know the paladin drops down and he cast a uh, um, I forget what kind of spell, but basically the equivalent of fear. You know, sort of like turn undead. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the very first ghoul he saw, who then you know cowered in the corner, and then the other guy, uh, a sorcerer, had a wand of web that he picked up, and he hit two others with the wand of web, and they failed their saving throw for like four rounds. <laughs> and rather than like kind of getting mad about it, I would just describe how these ghouls are getting continually tangled in the web, and like at one point, like one is in the full splits, right? Like he's he's managed to work himself into the point where he's upside down <laughs> doing Jean Claude Van Damme like splits. And and the players kind of dug it. They're like they they would always kind of go back to see what's going on with the ghouls. One of them ripped his own arm out of its socket and then used the web to tie it back on again. And <laughs> you know, so it's kind of this like how do you how do you have fun with a couple of ghouls that are stuck in a web mm-hmm. when you know they were supposed to be this big threatening fight and and three of the four ghouls were completely incapacitated before they ever got a single attack. And you know, you just work. You know, I'm 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 learning to just go with it and not care that it gets gamed because. You know that's the way this operates. Well, and and there's a there's a point where like I imagine like round one you stick with the horror theme and they're clawing at the webs and there's teeth are gnashing and all that kind of normal sort of stuff that that right. you can imagine from a zombie movie or whatever. Sure. But after four rounds of it being stuck in the web, yeah, you got to start having fun Ridiculous. with that, right? <laughs> so. and, and they did, you know, one of them Doru dropped on him and, and almost you know did did a fair bit of damage to him, bit him and clawed him and had him in a grasp and you know was draining hit points from him and all kinds of terrible stuff. So they had to deal with Doru. But it wasn't nearly as tough as it could have been. But that's okay, you know. Mm-hmm. Like it was still, it was still fun. And and I'm trying to to learn to live with the saver suck a little bit better. Well, and it was still harder than than originally yeah. written. You know. <laughs> so. Well, you know, my my new rule is there's no such thing as fighting one guy. You know, mm-hmm. if, if fighting one guy, you could do a narration because it's going to die. It doesn't matter if it's Orcus or not. You know, any single target's going to get its ass kicked. As as but, we saw in the novel Maestro that we're going to talk about yes. in a recording later, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, Demogorgon needed a few people with him. Right. A couple of Balors or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is like my orchestra. But that's, you know, that's something actually that... Um, that's actually something that uh, is true almost across yeah. all, all editions. editions. Right, yeah. right. I mean, that was the big problem with 4E, right? Is 4E kind of gave you yeah. this idea that they could be tougher. I mean, you called them solos, right? Called them solos, but they were not. And they yeah. I think even said, like, I, I remember the designers, of, you know, 4 designers were saying, yeah, we call them solos, but really they should have a couple other people. Yeah. Right. And, and I think... You know what, yeah. But do you know what edition that's not true for? Basic. That's right. <laughs> they didn't have solos at Basic. No, but I, I'm saying the idea that a, that a single creature isn't just mincemeat. 
Like it doesn't have to be called oh, yeah. explode. That's because everybody's got three hit points and, and uses a sling. <laughs> but, but even like at fourth or fifth level where they're relatively powerful, it's still they yeah, can then, be taken they out. Have a, they have a sling that does 1d4 instead of 1d3. <laughs> yeah, and nine hit points. So, you know, and maybe if they're real lucky, they can spend a month and heal. Um, not that I yeah. I remember basic. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, so lots of, lots of fun in, uh, Barovia and now they are just, uh, they've got a bunch of different quests that go to a bunch of different places. I'm having a lot of fun with the, uh, Blinksky toys. So they've been con- every time they see a kid and they like one of the characters is a toy maker and whenever he shows a kid a toy they go oh is that a Blinksky toy and he's like no and they're like ah that sucks <laughs> you know? I want a Blinksky toy and he's like and, I gotta beat this Blinksky and the, wasn't there a did they publish a, a random uh, chart of toys they had a they had a contest they had a contest yeah so I, I was certain they were gonna do something with yeah, it me too. I guess but I, I didn't see a random Blinksky toy but yeah. Uh, well, that, we should contact our friends over at Wanty and tell them to get on that. Come on. That, I, I suggest you do that. That sounds so, like a, a um, Trevor Kid issue over there. Trevor Kid <laughs> issue. Yeah, it's an issue that you don't have a Blinksky toy. Yeah. Um, so they, they're and they're kind of hanging on to that. Like that. One of his quests is the you know I want to go discover Blinksky. I want to go meet through this Blinksky sure. account. Have they so have like, they made it to Madame Ava and the and no not and yet the, okay. yeah and and actually kind of a, the hard thing which I'm going to oh she's gone. My wife disappeared. Um, She's how do I? So I, I kind of need in. them to go to Madame Eva next, <laughs> you know, because I want them to. I haven't done the fortunes yet. Right. I kind of don't want to do them early, you know. I kind of want to. I kind of want to just do them from the Madame Eva thing. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And but if they go, if they don't go to Madame Eva, they could miss the spot where the thing should have been. Eh, I guess they can always go back, but still. So I kind of want them to go to Madame Eva next. Well, yeah, and that, that kind of sets the other threads. And there's also the issue of like, oh, you've already explored the place that it was supposed to be, and it wasn't. There was nothing special there, and now suddenly there <laughs> is. You know? Yeah, you can always work that out. Right? You can. I'm not. I'm not too worried about that. Um. So yeah, so I like I like the adventure a lot. You know, I've, I've played Ravenloft a bunch. I've ran. You know, I think Jeff, you did the same thing. Like, right? We ran it like yeah, on Halloween. Years, yeah. And uh, but I'm still having fun with it anyway. Like there's enough that's different, and and I feel because I'm running this over like a six month period, there's a lot more time for me to kind of add things in. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I'm trying to do, and I think the book might have more of this in, in the typical. Uh, time. Um, in the typical Mike Shea way, I haven't read the whole thing before running it, even though it's <laughs> even though it says from the beginning read this whole thing before running it. I'm like, yeah, but it's long. so you think it's good but you have no idea where it's going is that what you're saying uh well i mean so i've given it a good solid skim and i like what i've read and i know that even if i hadn't you know even without reading it i know i'm gonna have fun running it. well and really you you end the adventure in castle ravenloft which is like chapter three (laughs) right right because it's almost word for word identical to the original it is Almost. Yeah. There's a few changes, but yeah, almost. There? Yeah, that, that's probably what's going to trip me up. Yeah, I don't know if our review has has it come out, Sam. No, I actually am editing it right before okay. this episode. I was editing it. I'm almost done. It's coming out tomorrow morning. Okay, sweet. So by the time Mike runs his next game, he can listen to the review and catch some of the changes. Uh, in fact, I talked to Chris Perkins about some of the changes uh, in my interview with him. Hmm. Um. Uh, yeah, so I, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying it a lot. I like, I like the sandbox approach. It's funny. I was reading a blog article that had a lot of interesting advice about how to run Ravenloft. And uh, I actually disagreed with a lot of it because they seem to want to railroad a lot of it. Uh. 
You know, mm-hmm. instead of doing the card drawing, you should, you know, place the items astride where you want them to go. And I'm like, that's that defeats the point, right? Like to me, yeah. the fun of it is I have no idea where they're going to go. Mm-hmm. And I like not knowing. Well, and, and I mean, I think that it's an interesting because it's very sandboxy in a really small sandbox. Yeah, right, right. You know? it's, I, think it's a, I think it'll be a really fun, nice six-month adventure. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it'll be or maybe, yeah, maybe not even that long. I don't even know how long I'll run it. Yeah, I, I, I wish I knew how long my current campaign was going to last because mm-hmm. um, I have no concept of that right now. Because on one hand, I feel like there's a lot ahead of us. On the other hand, I feel like we move way faster than I expect and I don't ever prep enough each week and I end up flying by <laughs> this is my pants for the last two hours because fifth edition just runs faster. Yeah. Yeah, um, right. right. And and I don't like doing random encounters. If I'm gonna have if I'm gonna take the time with an encounter, I want it to mean something. Yeah. I've yeah, I, yeah, I I've found with uh, Out of the Abyss anyway, the random encounters. Um and I think even the random encounters with uh um princes, uh I thought they had more to them. Like in, in Out of the Abyss there's like a bunch of different sort of situations that can occur. So in Princes, like, some of the random encounters are like, oh, you run into these raiders from this other cult, and you, yeah, it's meaningful. And <laughs> right. sometimes, and then one, another one was, oh, look, a pack of wolves. Well, yeah, who, care? Right. who cares? You know? Yeah, and actually, so I haven't run any random encounters in Ravenloft yet, but one of the things that I did, mostly because I just want to add a little bit of something that's my own into this, is I created three cults that are also operating inside of Barovia at the same time. And mm-hmm. one of them is like, uh, you know, the the Knights of the Silver Sword or, or whatever. And they're sort of the crusaders that are going around basically murdering people who they think are tainted by, you know, <laughs> fraud. And they may or may not be, right? So they're sort of the super lawful good that's actually kind of evil. Um, and then there's the Vistani that are secretly, think they're working for Strahd, but really aren't. Like, Strahd doesn't give a damn what they think. <laughs> but... Um, but they, they are acting on his behalf. They think they're acting with his will, and they're not. Mm. Uh, and then the other one, which I think is tied into one of the areas, is a cult that worships Asmodeus. And they're doing sort of, you know, Asmodeus worshiping stuff throughout and kidnapping people and doing terrible ceremonies mm. all over and the place. And there's already uh, a cult in yeah. the Curse of Strahd. There's, a, there there's that it, woman who's got, yeah, who's got that weird cult small. to Strahd, yeah. Right. It's, 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 it felt rather small. And I want to have it where, like, they could run into these, you know, they could run into these anywhere. Mm-hmm. Although there's some, have... there's some interesting history to that cult. I, I didn't realize, and, except that we did a the book club on the book I Strahd, yeah. which was pulled for as a lot of background material for the adventure, I found out. Oh, really? and, and there's a moment with that exact same family that sort of introduces you to how that relationship between that family and Strahd started. Oh. Huh. I'll have to maybe I'll read the summary on Wikipedia or something. Yeah, Strahd does this really <laughs> this really horrible thing to somebody who who like had wronged the family, but also had had betrayed him back in the day, right. and so he manages to capture him, turns him into a vampire, and then sticks him in a perfectly sealed mausoleum. Oh. <laughs> so it's like okay, well now you're now you will live eternally and yeah. in darkness and never feed. You know, oh, yeah. <laughs> and he's like you know eventually without feeding. It's gonna die, but you're gonna be hearing noises from that mausoleum for the next like right, right. six months or more. So. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, so I want to add. I want to have like little things that are my own, like like the dungeon underneath. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, if you look at them, like, why the hell did they even have a map to that cathedral? It's literally <laughs> two big rooms. Mm-hmm. You know, here's a big room with pillars and stuff, and here's another room below it. And they're like, oh, come on. Maps you know, are cool, like, but you could use that page base for something. Well, yeah, or or make it into like a mini dungeon with like three chambers in it. You know, yeah. it doesn't have to be anything huge. I mean, we ran the whole thing in one night, but it was just enough of them to go, "Wow, there's every freaking basement's got something." 
So anyway, yeah, having a lot of fun with it, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to the rest. Cool. And we we just hit it about an hour, so unless you've uh, or Sam has any last questions for you. I, I don't. Uh, I, I'm interested to hear uh, how those groups, the two groups that you're running, diverge. Because I, yeah. I, I often have a really good time running two groups through the same basic uh, you know, frame of an adventure because they do diverge so much. And it just really hits home the idea of you know, every single game that plays this, they could use the same book, but it's happening differently. Yeah. Well, and it shows how much games aren't railroaded as much as people sometimes think they are, because two different groups of players with the same DM could have completely different experiences. Yep. Yeah, and I and I would say, I mean, my experience with Out of the Abyss, um, and and from what it looks like with Curse of Strahd, they've they've designed the adventures pretty well around that. You know, like both both of them don't feel heavily railroady to me. Um, you know, groups can sort of di- diverge in a bunch of different paths, I, and I think that's true with princes too, like the direction that they mm-hmm. go. Is very open. Yeah, yeah. In fact, that's that's why they lost interest and moved on from Princes. And I think they're interested enough that they plan on coming back. Yeah. Um, but they left Princes because it's like, in my uh, campaign, because it's like, yeah, but we're all about the Dwarven delegation. And we found some of them. We found out some of them are out of reach in this other place. And one of them's over there. So we'll go after that one, you know? Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, that would, I think the thread in Princes was not, I was not crazy about. Mm. Like, it was too... It was too thin. Yeah, well, there's a little bit... Like, I think because they'll have gone through some levels and more storyline will happen, like, by the time they come back to that island, there'll have been some attacks. Like, they'll use those what, elemental yeah. bombs or whatever they are and blow up yeah, some right. towns, and right, right. that might get them more engaged again. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Good stuff. All right, cool. Well, I think we are at the end of our episode then. So, uh... We'll join us next month, and we'll talk more about our games, and Sam will actually play something, right? Hey, I played something. What are Sam, you talking Sam about? Sam will finally get his Gamer World game going, right? Yeah, maybe. I hope okay. so. He doesn't already? Doesn't he have a character that's like a shrub? No, no. That, that was... Gamma that World? No, that's not the Numenera one, though. So, <laughs> that's the end of this episode. We'll see you next month. Say goodbye, guys. Goodbye. Bye. All right, now we're done. <laughs> <laughs>